to the podcast of ideas. What you're about to hear is a recording from the Arts and Society Forum, which took place on Tuesday the 12th of May. The session was titled The Novel Lives, and it was the second in a series called Ask the Artist. The speaker is Kay Abley, and in the chair is Wendy Earle. Hello, welcome to this Zoom event by the Arts and Society Forum. My name is Wendy Earle, and I convene the forum and will chair this session. This is the second of a new series of discussions where we ask a practicing artist to talk about the work of art that has inspired them. We think this offers a way of thinking about the aesthetics of art, what makes art work. And we're interested in how artists develop their work by standing on the shoulders of giants. You can listen to the first session where Andrew Calcutt, news poet, talked about the Antigone story in Seamus Heaney's beautiful rendering of it in Burial of Thieves on the Academy of Ideas website. For this session, I'm delighted to introduce Kate Abley, author of the very enjoyable and exuberant novel, Changing the Subject. I read this over Christmas and I highly recommend it. And it's the reason why I asked Kate to join us today. She'll be talking about Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. She'll talk for about 15 minutes and then we'll have a discussion about Midnight's Children, about her novel and about the modern novel more generally. So over to you, Kate. I'm going to start with a quote that's repeated three times in um, Midnight's Children. If you are to understand just one life, you have to swallow a world. Um, And that's said by the narrator and main protagonist, Salim, uh, three times throughout the book. And um, so I'm going to repeat that theme three times throughout this talk. If Salman Rushdie can do it, so can I. And I know it's a really, really long book, and I know a lot of literati, arty-farty types, have said some really incomprehensible things about this book. But it is a rip-roaring, delicious, spicy, laugh-out-loud-in-places, brilliant story. And um, given that we've all got so, so much extra time, most of us, because we're not commuting and we're not going to their hairdressers, um, you know, give it a go, give it a go, but I'm going to try and persuade you. Anyway, um, I was, um, Wendy asked me to think about this in relation to my own work, but if you write, you tend not to be thinking about another novelist, otherwise you just try and regurgitate it. Um, um, So, um, but then we had this discussion about the shoulders of giants that Wendy referred to in the um, introduction. And all that keeps happening is I get a mental image of a teeny tiny me um, holding onto the hair of a very um, happy Buddha like um, Salman Rushdie, um, uh, along with a crowd of other little people all holding onto their hairs on his legs. And he's got his legs clamped around um, the heads of um, six times six different brilliant storytellers throughout history because um, that's what he does to you. And I keep seeing Cervantes and he's, put, he's got his face pushed up against um, Shahrazad, and his breath is stinking and she's rolling her eyes. And Gabriela, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is looking all resigned and sorry for himself. And Angela Carter's rolling her eyes at him and her eyes are bulging out because her head is being crushed. 
and Gunter Grass is looking decidedly resentful. Robert Louis Stevenson, his head is already cracking and there's a man and a monster coming out of his head. But he's still um, burbling through a bubble of blood how there's going to be a group of people coming um, like horny-handed sons of Coyle who are low-born low are going to come and rescue everybody. And Henry Fielding is just laughing out loud, um, even as there's blood spurting out of his ears. Um, and I know that's a bit of a Freudian clip um, that Salman Rushdie will do to you, um, but it's also not very fair on Salman Rushdie because he was a very nice, well-brought-up young man and um, he knew how things worked. And he had, although he didn't destroy any books, all writers, he had swallowed a world of books and he preserved them. Um, he used his excellent, um, his own excellent taste um, and a brilliant education and a wonderful, a genius of an imagination as a recipe. And he chopped up all these stories into bite-sized pieces and made a delicious chutney that you can eat straight from the jar because it's so tasty. Um, but I'm, I, I shouldn't start there. Um, just like um, Midnight's Children and Frankenstein and a lot of books, um, which start with a narrator near the end, but from before the beginning, I'm going to just talk a bit about context of um, Salman Rushdie's um, writing. Um, because he's from two quite, he's from a lot of worlds, but he's from a distinct two worlds in particular, literary worlds. Um, one is the um, Indian and one is the British. Um, and I'm afraid that I don't know much about the Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi writing tradition because I'm a child of my time too. Um, but there wasn't much going on at the time because um, they had other things on their mind. And Britain was a bit of itself. Um, I do know more about the British tradition um, and so did Salman Rushdie because although he, he was born in India, lived in Pakistan, but his secondary education, his tertiary education and the first 10 years of his working life were all in um, England. Um, and he was dealing with the puffed up parochial um, assumptions of the British literary world during that period. And there were two distinct phases of puffed up parochialism that were going on. Um, before the mid 60s, maybe even into the 70s, um, Britain, the British literary world was living off, its, off past glories. Um, it was surviving on the net book agreement, which made it effectively subsidized. Um, and it was riddled with class prejudice and um, racialized ideas. Um, and then it was only in the 1960s um, that those things started to change where a new generation, which I would argue is a new club, but anyway, um, was looking around for writers that would reflect their ideas about um, liberalism, leftism and anti-colonialism. But there wasn't much about. Um, there were some pretty grim, sometimes working class novels in a bit of a blip. They were very good, but they were quite grim. And an awful lot of awakening 
novels from women um, at the time. Um, they also imported magic realism um, from Spain and Italy, which is, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, almost unreadable. Mm -hmm. um, and a tiny number of people were reading that, but not really many. So the people who were being read at the time that he published were, I had a, I looked this up, Elizabeth Bowen, V.S. Naipaul, Iris Murdoch, Ian McEwan, Muriel Spark, Faye Weldon, Anthony Burgess, Kingsley Ambis, Beryl Bainbridge, and Doris Lessing. So that's the world that he was jumping into. Um, I'm going to leave out the whole novel is dead discussion because I haven't got enough time. Um, but, it, it's, but he killed it. Um, and this is how he killed it. Um, in the West, in this country, um, in particular, he's famous for taking the newer ideas of magic realism, um, as well as his post-colonial experience, and making something new and wonderful that um, revolutionized the way that we think about the novel now, in my opinion. Um, and that is true, but I think he does much more than that, which is why my mental picture um, is, uh, comes into my head because he also um, pickled his brilliant story in the universal traditions of storytelling. It, um, it's narrated in an oral style by an imperfect, but strong in the storytelling sense, um, central character. The character's actions are all judged by a, a strong sense of right and wrong, and I will come back to that. The places are just evoked marvelously. And the structure strictly adheres to a beginning, middle, and end structure, um, which really is a very useful structure. And those elements hold it together and drive it along. So you don't actually have to know the history of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Britain to really get a great um, time out of this book. But of course, it does help if you, if you do know about the history. And despite the multiple influences, multiple ethnicities, multiple characters, sometimes sprouting multiple arms and legs, multiple interpretations of the same events, and multiple locations, it's also, at heart, a, a book about simple dualities, right and wrong, um, good guy and bad guy, um, light side and dark side, um, based on the three religions that he's been, he was exposed to um, and the stories that go with those. He, he, does, um, he does get complicated when he starts to play with those dualities and the dualities reflect on each other and refract and distort. But I think that's actually quite a traditional technique too. He just really, really went to town on it. Um, and I, I think it's important also in today's climate to, um, to say that Midnight's Children is a soaring hymn to cultural appropriation. Um, it augments um, the universal need for stories about um, people that mean something. Um, and that is just taken from everywhere. Um, I will, uh, I think he backs away from what the people mean but um, that's that's a criticism for another time and he uses techniques and tropes and tricks that are from everywhere across oceans and across time 
And the main thing is it's a bloody good story. A really rip-roaring story. And that's, after all, what a novel is supposed to be about. It won loads and loads of bookers, as we all know, um, which shows that as a culture um, in Britain, um, we really, really love this book. Um, but it doesn't, I don't know about its lasting influence, I have to say. You can see the lasting influence across the world. So I can never say his name, Kazio Ishikaro. Is that how you say it? I don't know. He, you, and also Orhan Pamuk from Turkey. Brilliant books. And you just think, could they have been written if Midnight's Children had not been written? And I doubt it, which is why I do think there is pre-Rushdie and post-Rushdie. Um, I think in the UK, the influence is um, less clear. Um, in terms of the style and mood of books that we got after him. Um, and I wonder if he was casting pearls before swine, but all I can say is that they're jolly crunchy if that's what he did. Um, and I'm gonna just do a quick quote now. And it is a quick quote, so I won't bore you to death with um, huge long bits of it that are out of context. But here's a bit from near the end. Who, what am I? My answer, I am the sum total of everything that went before me, of all I have done, be seen, done, of everything done to me. I am everyone, everything, whose being in the world affected was affected by mine. I am anything that happens after I have gone, which would not have happened if I had not come. Nor am I particularly exceptional in this matter. Each I, every one of the now 600 million plus of us, um, people on the Indian subcontinent, contains a similar multitude. I repeat for the last time, to understand me, you'll have to swallow a world. Um, and I think that is what um, he did and continues to do. I would recommend any of his shorter books as well, um, although none of them are, um, ever get to that kind of height, I have to say. Um, so in my last bit, about, um, which is starting about Swallowing the World for the last time, I want to have a look at a couple of books that have made it past today's literary gatekeepers that we now have to live with and that have also sold very well. Um, and they're two books from the last couple of years. And I've chosen them because they're by uh, authors from countries that have been dominated by Britain. Um, in the past, so they're ex-British colonies. There's Normal People by uh, Sally Rooney, um, who's an Irish writer, and My Sister the Serial Killer, which is by somebody, Braithwaite, sorry, um, and she's a Nigerian. Um, and I know I would not like to be compared to Salman Rushdie, but um, I was struck by a couple of things in those books, which I read very close together um, last year. So I'm going to do it to them anyway. Um, and the first thing that struck me was the similarity of style um, across, you know, huge swathes of ocean. They both have a very, well, sparse style. And sparse can be done well, don't get me wrong. I love a short, neat sentence. Um, but using that style didn't seem to bring the depth that you can get with, with that kind of style if it's done really well. Um, and um, I don't need purple descriptions of places and stuff, um, but I 
to get a sense of place, but I didn't really get a sense of place at all with either of those books. They, they just, it, they could have been written anywhere that had hospitals, houses, bridges, and universities in them. Um, they really are um, placeless in some ways. Um, and that, that left them bland and tasteless in my mouth, I have to say. And I know that duality is um, self-isolating with a dry cough at the moment, but I can't say that I was particularly struck by a sense of plurality either. They're very simple um, books and they don't explore the multiplicities that they could be exploring, um, given what, what their subject matters are. Um, and there's no, the, as far as history is concerned, parents are mentioned, um, often as an excuse, I have to say. But the main thing is, is the characters. I always think characters are very important in books. And these characters were, for me, decidedly boring. Now, they could have been boring because they were talking about ideas that um, I was discussing when I was the age of the authors, um, and then I got over it, or it could be something else. Um, and I think that these writers, because they're free of the yoke of history, they're free of the yoke of geography, past writers and ethics. And I think that this, um, uh, this new, I'm calling, calling it woke yoke, um, actually means that they blinker themselves quite fearfully to plow a very narrow um, furrow that doesn't go much beyond their lived experiences, which given that they're making stuff up and stories, it seems to me to be quite a limitation. Um, and the most important thing, I think, is that they don't, as a narrator or as a character, any point, make any moral judgments about what the characters do. They just describe them um, in very uh, sparse language with, um, with and, then, and the dialogues um, all, it's not, well, I describe it as unspiced by punctuation, um, which can be a very useful tool and they don't seem to bother with that much. Um, so in the end, I felt like less like I was transported to another world and more like I got stuck on a long flight with someone who was a bit odd. Um, and I didn't really enjoy them. And it might be that I, that in their hands, the novel is an undead zombie. Um, and I've simply not swallowed enough of the world of books. I haven't read enough to know that there are, it's living and thriving elsewhere. Um, in the English language, and I know there's a lot of good Indian books in English that I actually prefer generally, um, but um, I'm not I'm not very hopeful at the moment. Um, but if when everybody's unmuted, if you can tell me some better writers in English, I'll be very happy to take them like um, to take to note them down. And just to end, I'd like to say that if you have tried Midnight's Children and put it down. Can I just suggest that you try again, and this time, don't worry about it being a great book. Um, say it out loud in your head and use the grammar, because the grammar really does spice the whole thing up and helps you pause and tumble along in what is a brilliant story. Thank you very much, Kate. That was a really uh, interesting and lively introduction. And 
as nicely opinionated. So I'm hoping that it's going to generate quite a lot of discussion. I wanted to just say a little bit about Kate's book, because I think it's fair enough that Kate doesn't want to be compared to someone of the stature of Salman Rushdie. But I think one of the reasons I really liked Kate's book was that it did seem to uh, go against the trends that um, you talked about, Kate, at the end about the other two novels. I mean, I've, I've, met, I've read um, uh, Normal People and enjoyed it in a mild sort of way, but yes, I wasn't at all excited about it. Um, I haven't read the other one. But I think um, the thing that really comes across in your book is uh, one of the main things is a very strong sense of character. And that seems to me quite rare today. And the other thing I think that comes across is um, there's a, a real exuberant language as well. Uh, but the whole thing is put in a kind of, is set in a very particular context, which then makes it something that you can connect with. And, you know, I think it's that thing about the particular in um, the universal in the particular, you're, you're sort of like, you can, connect with it more thoroughly and then understand its broader implications by having that context. So um, yours is in the context of Brexit. Um, and you know, it is, you play with that context quite uh, cleverly. Um, it sort of weaves its way through and, and the back and forth style of, um, the, of the narrative as well. So um, I think there's some interesting things to bring out, you know, that we can bring out in the discussion about that, the problems of, on the one hand, character, you know, making a novel with, a character, with characters that you like and want to, you know, you want to see them um, through to the end, as it were, whatever that end might be. And then also um, the idea that you're in a context which you can kind of, you know, whether or not, however much you know or don't know about it, you kind of feel like it's rooted and grounded in something that is real and it's, it's saying something about that context. And I think the Rushdie Bob book, um, Rushdie's book really does say something about his historical context, which is really gripping actually. Um, and I think you, you make a fair bash at the Brexit issue. So yeah. Okay, um, so I'm going to ask, I've got Jane and Kerry. Okay, um, well, thanks very much, Kerry. That was really interesting. And I haven't read um, Midnight's Children, so I will definitely read it now. I think it's run the book of three times, hasn't it? It's best book, best book of the century, best booker of all time. So, um, and I, the, the, what I was interested in is your critique of normal people at the end of that, because I also shared the same sentiment as you did when I read the novel, and I found it, entirely depressing novel I, I agreed with the characters seem to come out of character uh, at, at various times but I did think particularly the experience of the woman or the young woman in which in the end she um, seems to lose all subjectivity and you know it has to be in these sadistic relationships to have any feeling there's no feeling coming from an internal self but she engages in these very negative and, and very brutal relationships. Um, and as you say, with no moral content, I mean, they, you know, it, it's, here's a thing that's happening. But I just felt it really sad that a lot, because a lot of young people say this novel really speaks to me. And this is like a novel that most sums up my experience as a young woman. And I sort of felt, well, I can understand the hash me too movement if young women do seem to have this subjectless, lack of moral agency within their lives but is that just 
but then the critique against me is that's a generational thing you can't understand it because it's an entirely broken and different generational thing and is, is that is that why we don't engage with it okay thank you um kerry hi uh, hello everybody uh thank you kate that was um you have inspired me to read it uh, backed up obviously by jane here um so that's a really good thing because novels to me are cheap thrilling uh overnight entertainment and i have to say i found your book one of those uh, I, I thought it was brilliant and very very funny laugh out loud and uh, i agree with wendy's point about the character being central so I'm interested to know whether, given your main character, you know, basically changes form, age, the, the works, is, is magical realism a part of your, you know, way of approaching the novel? Is that your, one of your things or is that just, you know, incidental? So I'm quite interested in that. I would like to know what you mean by pre-Rushdie and post-Rushdie. You know, what are the defining changes, differences, influences in your view. I'd be really interested to know if anybody's seen the film, if it's any good on Midnight's Children. Um, is it worth watching? Because you people have um, slagged off normal people, but I, I enjoyed the Netflix series, if you've watched that. And I thought it was good and compelling, even though there is, it's incredibly grim, the, the way in which the girl, um, sees herself basically and treats herself is really horrible um so i'm quite interested in that final point though is um is satanic verses very different i mean i haven't read it either so i don't know if people have read that and obviously um because of the fatwa it's um everything else maybe it's just it's got le in some ways obviously it's more known about but it, yet it's got less literary acclaim I don't know if, if that's because it's less worthy and it's only seven years later. And just the final question on Midnight's Children for what you described, I love your description of it as this um, delicious chutney. It sounds really good. But is there anything, what is Rushdie's relationship? I like your point about um, saying sod off to cultural appropriation and the embrace of universalism, but what is Rushdie's relationship to multiculturalism? Um, okay, so I think the next person to speak is Jan. I, I, I just wanted to say, well, I wanted to get on anyway, just to say, tell you how much I loved your book, Kate, and I have actually read two thirds of Midnight's Children and then I lost it, so, um, but I suspect that if I read it right to the end, it would all kind of come together. It was actually, you know, pretty interesting as I, I remember as I went along. Um, um, but, I, but I just wanted to say um, that, well, I have the chance that I was gripped by your book and I, particularly because it has lovable characters and it keeps you, um, it keeps you, it keeps you guessing and it has a happy ending, which is a very important thing in my book. Um, but also, and also because you do that, that thing about show, don't tell, and you do that thing about, um, I guess is the thing about novels is you don't you you don't tell people until they need to know the information, but you tell it you tell them the information just when they need to know it, which is how you keep it pacing. So I think it it was good like that. And just finally, the thing that I particularly liked about it um, was that it has the the, the um, 
it shows you not having any children, the relationship between parents and offspring in a really beautiful way. Um, and I just love those aspects when um, just the way the interaction between individuals and um, you've just that the, the, your studying of the detail of how people relate to each other. I just thought was fabulous. So please do some more. And um, yeah, that's my contribution to the debate on Midnight's Children. Okay, thanks, Jan. All right, uh, Jenny Cunningham. Thanks, Kate. That was great. And could I say, for goodness sake, don't watch the film, whatever you do. Um, it'll, it's a horrible caricature of a brilliant, brilliant book. I actually have just finished it for the second time. Um, and interestingly enough, I didn't remember parts of it. And the parts I remembered weren't actually the most interesting parts of the book. It's a rollicking good read. I think, just get into it. I would advise though, going on the internet and getting a list of the characters. There's somewhere I'll, I'll try and find that has a list of all the characters in book one, two, and three. And that really helps because I think that the fact that the names are so unfamiliar to us um, does get in the way a bit if you allow it to. So get a list of the names and that really helps. And then you don't have to worry about it after that. A smattering of um, uh, Indian history will help, definitely. But I think most people of a certain age have got enough, more than enough, um, you know, to, to, to enjoy it. And I think one of the most fascinating things is the way in the story um, he links himself to the history of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh in very direct ways. And it's absolutely fascinating to have a character who subjectively links himself in an absolutely deliberate way to the events um, that are going on around him. Together with which he is so self-deprecating you can't help but love him right from the word go. He's so ugly. He becomes so deformed by various things that happen to him. You will love him after a very short period of time. But also you will get, I think Kate was absolutely right, you will get judgment all the way through. There will be a judgment of other characters very, very few real personalities. Some of the generals, I think, um, are, are real, um, real people, just to, if you like, act as milestones for the history. Um, but, oh, he's not afraid of passing judgment on people, but backs it up, you know, by people's actions and, and, and so forth. To, at the end of the book, have got a myriad of characters, but a few really central ones developed, I think is a fantastic art. I couldn't agree more that he is, he is a most accomplished novelist in, in that respect. I couldn't recommend him more highly. His, um, his depiction of Indira Gandhi, you will love, if nothing else. <laughs> it comes right at the end. Just one final thing I would say is he, I haven't read your book, Kate, apologies, but I shall do. Um, 
one thing he, he does do is he mentions snippets of what's going to come. And so you're constantly looking out for when those characters are going to actually come into play. Some of them quite late on, some of them earlier, but it, it keeps you going. So, so do get into it, do get into it. Forget the names, as I say, have a list if you can get hold of it and, and just go along. It is a rollicking good read, but it's one as well, I think, that really attaches you to people. It really allows you to understand a little bit um, about the history and the context of religion and, and also nationalism. Mm. So very good. So, so thank you, Kate, for, for, for bringing it back. I reread it with great pleasure. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks. Okay, Teresa, you're next. Um, I'll unmute you. There you go. Hi. I shall put my cards on the, the table at the start. Um, I've been too busy reading my partner's, proofreading my partner's nonfiction book to do any reading. Um, far less enjoyable, no doubt, than what you've written. Um, I did read Midnight's Children a very long time ago. Um, I read some of the free pages from your book on Amazon. I must say, I found them very engaging. Um, and something that may, I say that there's not a huge amount that I remember, it's such a long time since I read Midnight's Children, but there seemed to be a vividness about your writing that for me was one of the very distinctive thing about, about his writing. So um, among the images that stay in my mind from a very long time ago, is the unforgettable um, doctors diagnosing a patient through a hole in a sheet. Mm. Something else that I remember of the book from all that time ago was coming away with a sense that those things that were true that were represented in the book somehow seemed beyond belief, not credible. And those things that were surreal, you, you could find believable. There was this odd paradoxical duality. I'm not sure that I see the novel as being um, pre and post Rusty in the way you've suggested. Um, it's an interesting thought. Um, I remember reading either immediately before or after it, The White Hotel by D.M. Thomas, which at the time seemed like an unusual book in, in various respects in covering um, places outside of Britain and in the style of it. Um, I'm wondering if what happened around the time of Rushdie was kind of a, a synchronicity that he was part of, because I grew up in a world in which it seemed to me there was a literary canon and then there was sort of trashy novels. And that the canon was very defined and very rigid and very occasionally let something else in. And I think around that time, you had quite a lot of second generation or quasi second generation authors from different countries. You also had Caucasian people who had grown up in other countries uh, coming here like Joris Lessing, who had experience of very different countries and cultures. And so you have this um, insider outsider effect where people are looking at this society, for instance, and possibly other societies through different lenses at the same time. And I think in a way, um, 
it's a hybrid culture um, novel that was born around that time, perhaps rather than a pluralistic novel. And I think it was um, early enough to be pre-relativism. And I think that's one of the refreshing things about it. Okay, thanks very much, very useful. Okay, so I've got Dolan who will unmute, um, and then I'll ask Kate to come back with any responses. And uh, yeah, feel free to put up your hands to um, say anything else you want to say, okay? Yeah, uh, thanks Kate, I really enjoyed that introduction. Um, and something about the, the sheer ambition, I think, of, of Midnight's Children, which is quite refreshing and inspiring. And I, I read it about 10 years ago when I was getting interested in India, and for that reason, I've, I've maybe had more patience with it than than other people might. I know that uh, a lot of people don't like magical realism. They find it a bit kind of annoying or grating or so on. I think you do have to kind of relax and let it get on. Um, the thing that is interesting, we're trying to remember, I've tried to remember what it's about. And if you ask me to describe it in a couple of sentences, I don't think I could really. I mean, you say, you can give the premise, well, it's all people who are born at the moment of independence and it deals with Indian politics and so on. But what sticks in the mind are these little episodes, like the diagnosis through the sheet, I remember, certainly. Um, uh, I remember um, this Pakistani soldiers talking about how they're going to get the vegetarian bastards of the Indian army. Stuck in my mind for some reason. Um, the, the way that he deals with a lot of the sinister things, so the depiction of Indira Gandhi, who's hinted at a lot, as Jenny was saying, and it talks about her hair as a distinctive thing that you, you, you remember. And hints at some really dark themes, um, obviously the partition violence, the war in Bangladesh, um, language riots in Bombay, which are evoked through, through a child. And so you, you get all these little things. And what it adds up to is an atmosphere. That's what I really remember. It's not a, not a plot so much. It's a few characters, but it's, there's an atmosphere. And I remember there's a particular scene where he's describing a woman squatting, I think actually making chutney. And it's almost like a meditation on the word deciduous. And I remember actually picking up a dictionary to look up assiduous because he was using it in a way that I wasn't used to. And in that way, it's quite poetic as well. But it touches on aspects of, I would say there's a difference between realism with a capital R and especially 19th century naturalism um, and realistic fiction, because there are other ways of getting at, re at reality than kind of plonking you in the, in the front room with people and listening to their conversation or even getting into their thoughts. So I think, you know, you take a kind of conventional 19th century realistic novel, in a sense, it's unrealistic that you have access to people's minds in that way. And I think these, you know, a novel like Midnight's Children accesses um, people's realities in a, in, a, in a different kind of way. And, and I think the thing is, you do have to take it light, not too seriously. I think if, you, if, you, if, you're, uh, if, you, if you're reading it as a great novel, as Kate says, then you're not going to enjoy it in the way that you would that it's something that takes conventions from, from science fiction, from, uh, from all kinds of different genres and just is, is supposed to be entertaining. And actually, if you allow yourself to be entertained by it rather than being annoyed by it, you're far more likely to get the profound side of it as well. So I think that's, that's the exciting thing about it and where it's maybe inspiring for other fiction. Because I, I, I mean, I haven't read normal people, um, but people who don't like it, it seems to be like a shrunken version of realism. Um, maybe that's unfair, I'll, I'll, I'll probably read it eventually. But certainly, there's a, I think there's an idea that if writers are moving away from that kind of freedom of fantasy even, um, then they're limiting themselves in a way that's not, not good. Thanks, Dylan. Okay, Kate, I'll unmute you. Um, well, following on from that, really, um, it does seem that there are novelists who um, play with reality 
in the way that um, Geraldine has described, um, who are, I think, some of our best um, novelists at the moment. Tibor Fisher um, can't get published. China Melville, nobody's heard of. But The City and the City um, is the best description of um, modern society that I've read in um, a novel about now. And I think that Salman Rushdie did break down those barriers um, between trash, because um, he was really into Bombay films as well. And part of the reason why he's so vivid and visual is because he was influenced heavily by um, Bollywood. Um, and it's ironic that the films are all rubbish. There's been a TV series and a film, they're both complete tosh. I mean, it's strange because I did watch a, an episode of Normal People last night um, just uh, just to give it a go and there's nothing else on. And um, it did seem better. It seemed to work better visually, perhaps because there's less in the book. And it's not possible to put as much as Salman Rushdie put into one of his visual images into a visual image. It has to be um, hard you know, it has to be um, mainlined through words. And um, Normal People is, is quite an empty book, and so perhaps it worked better on screen. Um, because watching somebody going through those sufferings, rather than listening to the dry description of them in the book, it might work better. I don't know. And there's a lot of people said a lot of things. Um, oh, just quickly, if you're, if you're struggling with the list of characters, I, I learned this when I was a teenager for War and Peace and I was having trouble with the names. I, I did an awful thing. I gave them all names like Nancy and Fred and things and um, that began with the first initial of the name so that I could, I found it easier to follow and you might want to try that. So if you find it easier, although I don't think the names, the names in our multicultural city are, um, are that difficult to get your head around, but um, but if you want to just rename them, it does, I found that very helpful. Um, I, I don't think you, I think the characters don't have to be lovable in a book for you to enjoy it. Um, I think you can really um, enjoy um, going with a really nasty character on their journey. If at some point within the book, which is why I said this thing about um, moral judgment, it it's made perfectly plain that this is not a very nice way to behave so that you can be separated from you can be separated from having to, from identifying with the character in that particular way but at the same time enjoy doing really rather bad things um but i think it's uh it's the lack of any moral judgment in more modern novels that really um uh lets them down and um i'm not sure um last thing um jane on whether um because the reason why i read normal people was because my um nephew's boyfriend said oh i don't think anybody from another generation would get it i think it's so specific to our generation that it's not going to um be got by anybody older and the thing that struck me was that the things that they were discussing as if a revelation were very similar themes to the things that we were all discussing back in our 20s. Um, you know, about gender, 
about um, playing with different ways of, of, of having sex and um, on-off relationships. And I found that rather sad that they're still having these discussions. And it's like, you know, um, there wasn't any sex till the 60s. Um, they're, they're, they're reinventing these rather rubbish ideas that a lot of the people I can see here have rejected because they're rubbish. Okay, thanks. One of the things, I was just, sorry, my mind, yes, the, the thing about um, the novel, the Rushdie novel and novels that you enjoy, I mean, I think the point that Dolan made, um, which is that sense that uh, you don't have, you know, the kind of the, the, um, the trashy novel and the big, great novel, you know, the points that, not, not just Dolan, but others, so it's, you, can, you can take the novel and just read it just for sheer enjoyment. And I think that does come across very much with the, the Rushdie. Um, but I also think the other thing, and I suppose this is the question, um, not just UK, but others as well, is the question of what a novel says, is saying. Now, I'm not trying to say that in terms of a simple, simplistic message, um, because obviously that doesn't work in a novel, just to sort of, you know, for a novel to kind of hammer you over the head of what you should be thinking or saying is not going to work. But um, I suppose that the meatiness of Rushdie's novel reminded me of the meatiness of other great novels. So I've just recently reread Middlemarch. And the thing about it is that it's a very political novel. And again, it's another thing about, um, you know, you've, you've read a novel a long time ago and you come back to it and you, you sort of like think, oh, did I read this novel? You know, sort of like you remember bits of it and other, not other bits. But the thing about, and also sometimes it seems a very different novel. So um, Middlemarch seemed a very different novel to me reading it now, I think for the third time than it had been 10 years previously and, and before that as well. So it's a, I suppose the meatiness of the novel is a big factor and is one of the problems with the modern novel is that though it's actually you get very, very long, like normal people luckily is quite short, but you get very, very long modern novels which just don't seem to have anything um, Either they don't have anything very substantial to say, or they they say it in a much more verbose way and um, are more interested in sort of like the style of saying it rather, or, or the fact of saying it rather than just how you can be more succinct about what you say it say about something. So that there's a few points in there um, to, for people, other people to discuss as well. Alka, you're the next one. I read Midnight's Children a long, long time ago, and I remember I really, really enjoyed reading it. Um, I'm afraid I don't remember that much about it, but I have. it is quite interesting that in, in India there was quite a discussion about Rushdie and other writers, Indian writers like him who were writing in English, because some people saw it as, I mean, I don't think, I think Kerry asked about his take on multiculturalism. I don't think he's into multiculturalism at all. And um, in India, there was this thing of some people criticizing him for drawing, using parts of popular culture, um, but in a way, in a very westernized intellectual way. And I think that's just testament to his, his virtuosity as a, as a writer, you know, and he's taken from a lot of different sources that people have said. So I don't have any, I, I mean, I, I, as I said, I remember enjoying it. I'm sure if I read it again, which I will do. I expect to enjoy it as well on the recommendations that people have said. 
But I am interested in the thing that I think Dolan bit picked, said something about atmosphere and and um, that being very gripping because it's just it's really the two books I've read recently have been um, the plague, of course, <laughs> and um, John Le Carre's The Russia House, and both of them are just so so I think brilliantly evoke. Um, a, a place, but not in, in a sense, not just a sort of a place in the way uh, a, a lesser novel would describe a particular specific street, but it's almost like an era or a, a sensibility or a, a sort of set, a way of looking at the world that, that, is, that is really um, profound, even in a genre novel like Jean Le Carre's. I mean, he's a, he's a genre novelist, but a brilliant one, I think. Um, and, and Camus is just, I think, absolutely fa fabulous. And that also uh, got me thinking about the thing of moral judgment, because in, again, in both those books, I know what you mean about there has to be a moral engagement, but I'm not sure about whether, moral, whether the moral judgment is to be found within the book or within yourself, in, in your engagement in the book, in the way it gets you to think about uh, moral complexities. And so, you know, it, I, I, for me, the better book is the one that puts it back on the reader, if you like, rather than give you a clear example of what is a, a good or a bad or an intermediate moral uh, example. Um, and just finally, just, I mean, I, I do, I, I just do think it, it is in the language. It's in the, the way, the way these writers can, um, not in a technical way or a formalistic way, but the, the way they the power to evoke things is really in the construction of their sentences, their choice of vocabulary, the timing of when they introduce a certain thing and the flow and construction of the narrative, I think, sort of moves you in a rhythm. I mean, that for me is what, what I love about a good novel. Mm. Thanks, Alka. Uh, yes, and now Jan, again, unmute, yeah. Um, it's a question really, well, it's probably, it, I was gonna ask this anyway, but following on from what Alka just said, I. I was thinking about what you said, Kate, about um, it doesn't have to be likable characters in a book. And can you just clarify this? Because it seems to me I want a book to have the possibility of redemption in it. I want there to be something that it doesn't just all end in tears with no meaning. Um, and so were you saying it doesn't have to be likable characters, um, that but there just has to be some sense of, some, some awareness of morality somewhere in it. Um, I would have think that would be kind of necessary. So when you say, Alka, that the better book is the one that puts the moral question back on the reader, I can kind of understand that um, so long as it's not, as long as you're not saying that, I'm not, I can't really make this quick clear, but I, the, the point I'm trying, I think there has to be, you have to have some sense that the writer has a moral compass. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, because I don't really read many novels, um, how much novels today do that. So maybe someone could comment. Interesting. Okay, I've got Dolan to speak. Um, and if so, if anybody else has anything to say, it's time to put up your hand. I mean, just feel free to ask any, even the most basic questions that you think you're not sure about or, or whatever. And if you, I think it'd be also interesting to sort of like, just take a bit further this, uh, even if you don't have anything to say about um, either Kate or, this, or Salman Rushdie's book, take a bit further this, this discussion about, you know, the problem with the modern novel. Is there, a, is there, 
do, do we have a crisis? Because at some level, you know, we could see that, you know, there was a really rich um, strain of novel writing in the sort of, you know, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe 80s. And at the moment, there's huge amounts of novels written and the, I find it very difficult to know what I should be reading that's going to give me something um, that I'm looking for in a novel, which is, you know, what we've discussed uh, a, a fair amount to do with character and, um, and depth and so forth. But if anybody's got any particular recommendations or novels that they love or novels they'd like to just um, trash, that's also fine. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Dolan, it's your turn now. Yeah. Yeah, well, I do have a recommendation. And Kate was asking about books that might be kind of in the genre she was talking about that might be interesting. And I, I recommend a book called The Idiot by Elif Bataman, um, who's a Turkish-American writer. The Idiot is a deliberate nod to Dostoevsky. Um, she's a Turkish-American writer who studied Russian literature, and the novel is about a young Turkish-American going to study Russian literature. So in one sense, it's very, very autobiographical, a bit narrow, can't you think bigger? But what's interesting about, is, it, is it, it's about what she sees in Russian li literature and her conviction that books are supposed to be about something and have some kind of profound meaning. And also her frustration when she goes to, I, I think it's Harvard, um, and she, she wants to know why does Anna Karenin have to die? But all the lecturers want to talk about is how 19th century Russian landowners feel conflicted about whether they're European or not. And of course, that's not really why you read novels, but it's interesting. And you can look at something like uh, Midnight's Children in that way as well. You can see it as what does it tell you about um, post-colonialism and about the, uh, about the formation of India and so on. But what really grips you is the characters and how they engage in, in, in those questions. So I, I think that's... Um, that's that's why I I read novels, um, and I think you know you can you can have a very political, very historically aware novel, but what makes it interesting is the way that you use that to present something about human experience, rather than as a sub you know if you want to write a textbook about Indian history, then you can do that. If you're doing it as a form of a novel, then presumably you're trying to do something a bit different. Um, so that's that, that's uh, um, one recommendation. Okay, thanks. Yes, I've written that down. I'll have a look at it. Um, okay, uh, Teresa wants to speak. I've just said there's a message from Bernie uh, saying Angela Carter is much better than Rushdie. Normal, Normal People is a great novel, and there's Jumpa uh, Lahiri. So there's Hopeful Novel, of course. Um, but I'll ask Teresa to come in now and then Jenny. Um, Teresa, there you go. I'm just trying to think of some of the attributes of novels that I have at some point thought were great novels. And um, one of the novels that I had trouble with to start off with was one we did for the book club at one point, which was The Buried Giant. And it was only at the end, I think I had, or partway through, I had a similar response to Never Let Me Go, that I began to realise how profound it was. And I think that is, is sometimes an attribute of a great novel, that you're accepting it on one level, and then you realise how much more is buried underneath us with the buried giant. And um, I often want to reread those books to read with a more informed mind what I read more ignorantly to start off with. Um, another important attribute of a great novel to me is one that I'm sorry to have end, that I feel I've been 
having an experience, a valuable experience with a friend. And when it ends, I feel my life is less enriched. I want it to go on. And something else that I think is true of a, a lot of, of um, important books to me, and I think it was true, it's very true of Rushdie's writing, that there's some books one wants to read in page-turning mode to see what happens. But there are other books, and sometimes the two qualities go together, that one doesn't want to quaff swiftly. One wants to savour. One wants to savour the actual writing. Um, just one other point that I, I don't think we've discussed. Um, I thought it was interesting what Kate mentioned, um, the bit about um, to understand one life, you have to swallow the world. And in, in terms of relationships between individuals and individual countries, there is another quote, I think, from that book, which is about being handcuffed to history. And, and that evoked for me something that um, Obama said not long ago, which I think has some of the same flavor about um, the lives of people being shaped by history. Okay, so Jenny next. And then uh, I'll ask Kate to come back. Uh, Midnight's Children doesn't have a particularly happy ending, I'm afraid, Jen. It's, uh, it sort of fades out, but there's plenty of chutney, so that prob <laughs> probably mitigates it. Um, I, I think, um, Kate, you're absolutely right that there is a post-Rushdie um, period, and I think it's particularly amongst um, uh, people from ex-colonial countries. So I'm, I'm thinking of the Nigerian writers. I mean, one, one book I could really recommend, but it's certainly very far from magical realism, um, is, is Half of the Yellow Sun by, um, oh, let me get to see if I can remember it, Shimamanda Ngozi uh, Adeshi, something like that, anyway. Half of the year, it's about the Nigerian Biafran civil war. So it's, it's I suppose, similar period of history, post-colonial. Um, and when I say it's, it's not magical realism, it's, it's actually nitty gritty realism, but it is a fantastically complex novel with some wonderful characters, uh, far fewer than uh, Salman Rushdie's um, huge, um, uh, a huge number. Um, but I, th I, think, I think you can really see the influence of Rushdie on those sort of writers, the, the, the need to sort of try and get to grips with major sort of historical periods through the development of their characters and through their interaction and relationships. Okay, Kerry, um, you next. It, it, just a couple of things. I'd be really interested to know of any other, so I've got The Idiot and Half of the Yellow Sun to read, as well as Midnight's Children. If anyone else has got any great recommendations that'll be really good i did want to ask i'm i'm a film buff rather than a great novel reader but um i can never usually watch a film if there's been a book that's good in case you know i could never watch the film germinal in case it ruined germinal because i knew what i felt those characters were and i didn't trust anybody um to do it justice on film but that's not always fair uh, but it's often how you feel. 
although a few people have said that on normal people, and I'm not sure, Alka, if you're right, that simplicity makes for, you know, bad TV necessarily, because some of the most compelling film and drama that we've seen over the last 10 years has, has almost, you know, you look at something like Game of Thrones and it's, it is magical realism on screen, you know, and highly compelling. Or you look at things where you are, um, like Breaking Bad, where you are, which you can binge watch precisely because you've got such a bad, immoral character and you are being taken on this immoral journey to the point where you feel immoral for having binged on it at the end because you want the evil bastard to come out on top. Even with everything that he's doing, you still want him to win. And that's great film um, uh, and TV that can do things like that. So I'm not sure that simplicity is necessarily the, uh, 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 you know, uh, the issue. I think it is about great writers and, and great filmmakers, great directing, really, just as uh, like a great writer. And not all novels and books will lend themselves to film. I did just want to say Dolan's novel is really good and ask him if he's got another one coming because um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, although I found it harder than Kate's. What I loved about Kate's, and if you haven't read Changing the Subject, uh, I'd strongly recommend it, is that it's so believable. The conversation is so real, yet it's completely unreal, everything that happens. But you are completely taken in. And that's what's good about the world of acting to me too, is that you have to be convinced by them, even if they're unreal. And on magical realism, which I know nothing about as a genre, whatever you call it in the world of all you writers and people who know about this literary stuff, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, as well as some of his other stuff, is one of my most favorite books ever. And I found that really compelling yet incredibly unreal. Uh, I did make a mistake of giving it to a friend of mine while they were in prison, which was a bit unfortunate, because um, I never actually saw it as the way the title reads. You know, it's not really anything to do with solitude. Um, but I'd like to know why you turn your nose up at uh, Marquez. So um, I'm going to ask Kate now to come back and respond to that and other, co and other, uh, other comments she wants to do. And then I'm going to unmute everybody where we can sort of clap Kate and finish the formal part of the discussion. Kate, over to you. I think this has been, I've really enjoyed this um, conversation. Um, it's been really interesting. And I do, I, I think that the points that people have made, they've made them, they're very good. Um, I don't know what else to say really. Um, <laughs> I haven't really got a summation. Um, I really, I really enjoyed that discussion. Thank you very much. And if, and, um, as people have said, oh, I would just say, um, just um, there can be good films of books. I've seen a few, and um, there's actually a musical of Wise Children, and that's really good as well. So, yeah. Thanks to Kate and Wendy for that Arts and Society Forum. If you'd like to attend future salons, forums or debates, head to academyofideas.org.uk and check out our upcoming events. And if you enjoyed that discussion, how about giving us a donation? All our online events during lockdown are free.
so we're counting on your generosity to keep us going. Thanks again, and stay tuned for more from the Academy of Ideas.